Well, we are in John chapter 18, and last week we looked at Jesus before Annas, the uh, former high priest who was really a, a godfather type figure, and if you think of him as the power behind the power, so to speak, then you've got it. And in the last two weeks, we have seen how Jesus was connected by John to both Genesis 3 and his temptation in the Garden of Gethsemane, but also Genesis 22 and his role as a new and better Isaac. So what's on view in John, really from here till the cross, is a faithful Adam and a better Isaac being led to the altar for us and our salvation. And he chose this path. He chose this path in both love and obedience to the Father. But juxtaposed against Jesus's confrontation with Annas is Peter, facing his own trial over whether he would remain faithful to Christ. We're going to pick it up with uh, verse 15, and then we'll jump to uh, verse 25 after that. Simon Peter followed Jesus, and so did another disciple. Since that disciple was known to the high priest, he entered with Jesus into the courtyard of the high priest. But Peter stood outside at the door. So the other disciple who was known to the high priest went out and spoke to the servant girl who kept watch at the door and brought Peter in. The servant girl at the door said to Peter, you also are not one of this man's disciples, are you? He said, I am not. Now the servants and officers had made a charcoal fire because it was cold and they were warming, they were standing and warming themselves. Peter also was with them standing and warming himself. Now to verse 25. Now Simon Peter was standing and warming himself, so they said to him, You also are not one of his disciples, are you? He denied it and said, I am not. One of the servants of the high priest, a relative of the man whose ear Peter had cut off, asked, Did I not see you in the garden with him? Peter again denied it, and at once a rooster crowed. Well, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to Christ for it. Let's go to him in prayer. Heavenly Father, we give thanks for the mercy and the love that we have in Christ. We give you thanks for his faithfulness to you, for without it we are lost. So we pray this time that you would use this word from John, this account about Peter, and work in us, in our hearts, in our minds, in our bodies, faith and hope and love, and that we would see maybe just a a little bit more even, just how much you delight in us and how much you care for us and how much you want for us. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, to this point in chapter 18, if you've been tracking with this, Jesus has shown, and this happens earlier in the book of John as well, he has shown that he is, that is, he is the God of the burning bush come in the flesh. He is the one through whom and for whom, as Paul says, all things were made. And John wants us to see Jesus and Peter as contrast. That's why when you look at it just from a literature point of view, it's like scenes switching in in a movie. And it's not just that one is the Messiah and, and the other is not. We get that. But rather, it's a contrast in faith. But Jesus What's on view is the fulfillment of the Old Testament, and not merely that he fulfills certain prophecies like we find 
uh, in the book of Isaiah, as important as they are, it's that he is faithful where every other human has failed to be faithful, even the very best ones. So he's a better Adam, a better Noah, a better Isaac, a better Joseph, a better Moses, a better David, a better Solomon, a better Elijah. All of his ministry points to him fulfilling all those patterns we find in those people and more. He is what God intended for humanity to be. And by his faithfulness, we, we see not only what a truly alive, mature in his walk with God human looks like, we also see the one who fights for his people and, and brings us life through his faithfulness. So Jesus does for us what we cannot do for ourselves. Now against this, we have Peter. And Peter is very much like us. He is a mixture of faithfulness and unfaithfulness. He is, he is double-hearted, so to speak. So for example, in Matthew 14, out of all the disciples, Peter, Peter alone trusted Jesus in such a way that he took Jesus's invitation to join him on a raging sea and walked on water. I don't know about you, I, I don't have that kind of faith. Peter did. But once, if you know the story, he reached Jesus, the storm overwhelmed his confidence in Jesus despite standing right next to him and he began to sink and he cried out to Jesus to save him. In Matthew 16, Peter, speaking for the disciples, confessed that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. And I'd argue there is no higher confession a person can make about who Jesus is. And in response, Jesus praised Peter and told him that he had received this confession of faith, this truth and insight about who Jesus is from God the Father. That's pretty special. But in the very next scene, Jesus began to talk about his coming death at the hands of the Sanhedrin. And he told his disciples, I'm going to die, but not to worry. He would be raised three days later. Now, Peter not only rejected what Jesus said, he rebuked him privately over, him, over it, telling him, this cannot, Jesus, be the way of the Messiah. You're getting it wrong as if Peter knew better than Jesus what the Christ, the Son of the living God, was supposed to do. So Jesus, in turn, uh, called him Satan and, and told him he was a hindrance to him. So just even with those two stories, you know, you, Peter had, you could see, tremendous moments of faith. But he could just as easily reject Jesus or lose confidence in him. And we see that same pattern at work in John, really in this, this sermon series we've been working through since John 13. So when Jesus washed his disciples' feet in John 13, Peter, if you remember, was having none of it. As he saw it, again, this is not proper behavior for the Messiah. And Jesus told Peter that he wouldn't understand what he was doing in that moment, but it would become clear to him later. But still... Peter refused until Jesus told him point blank, listen, Peter, if you won't let me do this, you've got no part in me. To which Peter said, fine, don't just wash my feet, wash my whole body, which tells you he did not understand what Jesus was doing. By the end of that same chapter, chapter 13, Peter 
was distraught over Jesus telling the disciples again that he was leaving. He still did not understand, or perhaps more accurately, he didn't accept that Jesus was going to his death. And in response, he said, I will die for you. And I think Peter, in that moment, I think he meant it. I think he was serious. But by chapter 18, Jesus and his disciples, there they are. They're facing down a couple hundred soldiers. And Peter, you know, I assume trying to make good on his word, attacked one of the high priest's servants with a sword. Now, to put this in, in context, I own guns and I know how to shoot them. Probably about as well as Peter knew how to swing a sword. But the idea of me engaging a trained soldier, let alone a couple hundred of them, with a handgun, was just stupid, right? It's just folly. There's nothing heroic about what Peter did. You know, if anything, Peter was demonstrating both his lack of faith that Jesus was actually in control of the situation, as well as his rejection of what Jesus had taught about his coming death. So what we see with Peter is just like us. He's a mixture. He's a mixture. Sometimes there's faith, you know, but then it's followed by doubt. Sometimes there's incredible insight about who Jesus is, getting the truth of the gospel only to reject Jesus's word. Sometimes there's wholehearted commitments to Jesus only to go and fight the wrong fight because we think Jesus is wrong on some point or that worse. We think we know better. We think we know better. So if Jesus is the great I am, Peter, as John presents him here, is the I am not. I am not. In verses 15 through 18, we read, that Peter and another disciple, that is John, I think he's trying to be humble at this point, that John, the author of this gospel, they both followed after Jesus. John somehow knew Annas, the high priest. We don't know how, but somehow he knew him. And so he was granted access to the courtyard of the house where Jesus was being interrogated. And Peter was kept outside. So John went and spoke with the servant girl at the door, and she was probably a teenager, I'd say, and he got her to let Peter in. And the servant girl asked Peter if he was also one of the disciples. And apparently, and this is, this is just by inference here, John had identified himself as Jesus's disciple. And the way this young woman asked the question to Peter was in such a way of expecting a negative response, as in, well, you're not also one of his disciples, are you? I am not, says Peter. And we read that Peter then warmed himself by the fire where other officers of the Sanhedrin and Annas' servants uh, were warming themselves too. And again, we don't read that John was there, so now, I could be wrong about this, but I take it that John was closer to where Jesus was than where Peter was. I mean, after all, John, John followed Jesus all the way to the cross. He never flees. He follows Jesus all the way to the cross, and he witnesses him die. 
Even so, as Luke indicates, both disciples were able to see Jesus during this interrogation in the courtyard. As an aside, I think the detail about being warmed by the fire is not merely a detail trying to fill out our visual uh, of the situation, but rather, I think, like other places in John, it's functioning as a symbol of what sort of light Peter was now walking by, what sort of light he was finding comfort in, and it was no longer Jesus. And so he's standing around the fire, and clearly he's the odd man out there, and the other people not recognizing him and wondering probably what he's doing there, ask him the same question. You're not his disciple, are you? I'm not, says Peter. Then finally, one of Annas's servants and a relative of Malchus, whose ear Peter had cut off just really a few minutes earlier, said, didn't I, didn't I see you in the garden with him? And again, Peter denied it. In the book of John, this is Peter's last words. It's the last words we hear from Peter, and we don't hear him again until after the resurrection. In other gospel accounts, we know that with each question, he grew more agitated till with the final question, he cursed and said, I do not know the man. And at that moment, Jesus looked at Peter They locked eyes, and Peter remembered what Jesus had said, and he went out from that courtyard, and he wept bitterly. So then, what do we we make of Peter, having looked at this this event? Maybe if he had only tried harder, been a little bit braver, owned his words, if he had actually believed Jesus had been a man of his conviction, things would have been different, right? I mean, after all, John stayed with Jesus. He didn't deny Jesus. Now, keep in mind, no one was actually threatening Peter. They were merely asking if he was Jesus' disciple. So for as much as Peter believed Jesus was the Son of God, in that moment, He did not think the Son of God was capable of protecting him or holding on to him. In his book on Christian masculinity, Jeffrey Himmer notes that the movement from immaturity to maturity is the movement from consumption to giving. Now think of it in terms of the growth from childhood to adulthood. As infants, and toddlers, you know, virtually the entirety of our lives at that, that moment in our lives are about taking and consuming. So a child's life depends on someone else giving her everything she needs for life. But as children age, good parents gradually teach their children to share with others, right? Can we share our toys with someone else? No? Yes, we are. Let's try sharing. We all know what that looks like. And we try to move them away from selfishness. That's what good parents do. And this has to be taught because selfishness is the default sinful disposition of every human heart. So it is possible 
to be very old and not to have grown past being a toddler in a certain sense. So sharing our possessions, let alone giving ourselves away, is not something that comes naturally to us. And this process grows as we age till, as adults, we are able to commit our lives to someone or something else. So marriage, for example, is a lifelong commitment of self-sacrifice and self-giving for the betterment of another person. In marriage, the default position must not be, but what about me? It must be, what about you? And I don't mean that in the, the condescending anger, well, what about you? No, 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 no. How can I serve you? That's, that's the position. You know, it's the difference between selfishness, what about me, and self-giving, what about you? Now, the commitments parents make to their children is that they will give their lives for them. So when you hear parents complaining about not having a social life or not being able to pursue their hobbies or you see parents ignoring their children for the sake of their phone, that's immaturity and that's pursuit of childish consumption. Jeffrey Hemmer puts this to work in explaining what proper masculinity actually is, and it has nothing to do with how much weight you can lift, how big your truck is, how many sexual partners you have, or, or how many weapons you own. No, the essence of masculinity is self-giving. That's the essence. Now, that's true of femininity, too, though it takes on a different form than masculinity. But to be a fully alive human is to be a person committed to giving yourself away. And the irony of true masculinity is that in order to grow into this mature life of self-giving, you first have to receive. You first have to receive. As Himmer writes, and this is basically the summary of his book, he writes, before he can give himself away, he must be given to. Before he can be a man, he must be a boy. Before he can be a father, he must be a son. Before he can be of service to others, he must be served by the one, Jesus, who came not to be served, but to serve. Before a man can give life, he must receive life. Before a man can provide, he must be provided for. Before a man can protect, he must be protected. Before a man can fight, he must be fought for. Before a man can pray, he must be prayed for. Before a man can love, he must be loved. Before a man can be the instrument of good for others, he needs God to be an instrument of good for him. And what I love about all that is that it dispels, it dispels the myth of the self-made man and all the ridiculous, macho, bravado posturing that often counts as being a real man in American culture. But what Himmer has to say about being a man, it just equally applies to being a disciple, male or female alike. You see, we are not our own, but we're bought at a very high price. God loved us before we loved him. Jesus laid down his life for us before he ever asked us to take up a cross and follow him. We have been given everything so that we might in turn grow to be the gifts for the life of the world that he wants us to be. 
So what you see then with Peter is not merely a weak faith. I mean, he does have that, but it's not merely that, you know, where he needs to, to man up and get it together. No, it's more so an immature faith that tried to follow Christ in its own strength. You know, by definition, faith is never in your own strength. So if someone says, for example, my faith will get me through, I hope that's shorthand for saying my God will get me through. Because if you're thinking that's you and your hope and your belief that's going to do it, it won't. It cannot. And what's so great about Peter's story is that it does not end with, I am not. It doesn't. Jesus, think about this. Jesus never rebuked Peter for his immaturity. He never said, you need to get it, get, get it together. You need to work harder. And he never said, oh, you're no longer my disciple. He doesn't. He never treated Peter like so many men treat their young sons who are incapable of maturity because they're young. They never say, man up. There's no crying in baseball. Which, by the way, I've been guilty of. I've been guilty of treating my own sons like that. And you know what's wrong? It was wrong. No. He sticks with Peter. He's not ashamed of him. He builds him up to the point that the Peter we find in the book of Acts, while he's not perfect, he's not without sin, he has grown from a man who has moved from consumption and his own selfish concerns to self-giving, to where he can actually own the phrase, I will die for you. He goes from fearing what identifying what Jesus might cost him to preaching to huge crowds, including the Sanhedrin, you know, the very people who crucified Jesus and receiving beatdowns and jail time for it. But here's the reality. Jesus chose Peter. He patiently taught him. He never gave up on him, and he grew him from immaturity to maturity, and it took time. It just took time. It's like what we celebrate today with infant baptism. You know, this young man has not made a choice either. He's incapable of making that choice right now. His parents, in faithful obedience to God's command, have brought him to God, trusting that God will make good on the same promise he made to Abraham, a promise he has continued to make good on generation after generation for thousands of years. You know, baptism is not something we do. It's not. It's not merely a public profession of faith. No, like God leading Israel through the Red Sea in the Exodus, as Paul says, it's something God does to us. Baptism is God's mark of faithfulness to his people, not our mark of faithfulness to him. So if you were listening to the vows the parents took, they trust that God will work in their son and will bring him to maturity. And of course, they take an active role in teaching him. Of course. The Bible teaches that parents must model self-giving to their kids. Even so, it's like what Paul writes to the church in Philippi. He says, 
I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you, all making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. We trust that that God has begun in this young man, that what he has begun already, long before this moment of baptism, that he will bring to completion. Why? Because God is faithful. God is faithful. He is the covenant-keeping God. And that's exactly what we see with Jesus and how he treats Peter. You know, even as Peter denied Jesus three times in his presence, I am not. The great I am never denied Peter. See, God loves to take people. He loves to take people and grow them from immature consumption to mature self-giving, from self-centered lovers of self to self-giving lovers of God and neighbor. So all of us here, all of us here are mixed bags. All of us. Mixed bags of, of faithfulness and faithlessness at times. All of us make commitments to God and then take it all back when pressured by the world or maybe by our friends. All of us take some parts of Scripture seriously, parts that we just love, and then ignore or reject other parts that make us uncomfortable or contradict how we want to live. And if it all depended on us, then the end of our story would end like Peter's in this passage, with tears and with the words, I am not, and that would be marked on us forever. But it doesn't. The end of our story does not depend on us. It depends on Jesus, the great I am, who was faithful for us and our salvation, who never tires of his people, which, by the way, means he never tires of you. He never tires of you, and he never fails to work life in us. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, there is no God like you. None. You're so good. Your steadfast love endures forever. Thank you, Lord, for not merely patiently enduring with us, but in delighting in us and wanting what is best for us, being the best teacher there is. We pray all of this in Jesus' name through the power of the same Spirit. Amen.